Justify prove to be right or reasonable Justification is at the heart of all legal and political argument but at a time when argument itself is slave to appearances it is time to bring back a culture of justification Justify a podcast on law and politics in India from the Vidhi Center for Legal Policy hosted by Orgos and Gupta Hello and welcome to another episode of Justify. Dedicated listeners of this podcast may think that we have already discussed the farm laws last season. So why again? Last year, we discussed the hits and misses of the three farm laws, but we did treat them as fait accompli because they had happened and the government seemed to be suggesting that the laws were here to stay. Now, of course, a little more than a year after, they've been wiped off the statute books for good. Is this a victory for democracy? is it a victory for farmers and is it a victory for indian agriculture before we get ahead of ourselves it's time for a quick recap for the uninitiated or someone who may have forgotten as as i did for for a while the three farm laws were number 1 the farmers produce trade and commerce promotion and facilitation act that basically enabled trade in agricultural produce outside the existing mandis the second the farmers empowerment and protection act set up a framework for contract farming allowing farmers to directly sell their produce to private parties the third was an amendment to the essential commodities act which removed certain commodities like cereals pulses oil seeds honey and potato from a list of essential commodities basically it limited intervention in the agricultural market by the government in january 2021 in the backdrop of the farmer protests the supreme court had stayed the implementation of these laws that is they were not applicable and it had set up a committee that committee had gone nowhere uh, but in november 2021 the prime minister uh, on uh, gurupurab announced the withdrawal of these three farm laws the repeal bill was introduced and passed on 29th november 2021 unanimously without much discussion in both houses of parliament this is where things stand now it feels like a lot has happened but in law it's we are back to square one nothing has happened at all the repeal of farm laws without making a provision for any viable plans to address such challenges in the agricultural sector may not bring much relief to anyone the sector is in still in dire need for reforms so where do we go from here to discuss this like in season 2 uh, we have irina vittel a personal mentor a friend a director at vidhi and an expert on indian agriculture thank you irina for joining us today thank you for inviting me back So we thought it, this will be a good time for a sequel, but the sequel is being uh, discussed in a very different scenario. So the farm laws are gone, uh, the UP elections are done, uh, the Punjab elections are done. Uh, where do you see the agricultural sector going from here? Given that it seems that we are back to square one, I don't see it going very well anywhere actually, because I haven't seen any. concerted effort to do anything to fix indian agriculture and i think what would be delightful is if we do end up having uh, an approach to how we think about the future of indian agriculture in the coming years that's right so you had in fact said uh, last time that uh, this uh, the farm laws is only tackling one very small piece of the overall problem that ails indian agriculture so given the fact that we are kind of on a clean slate again 
uh, and you had said last time that we need to think about the entire agricultural supply chain, not just a question of giving some farmers choice. So if we were to in now reinvent the wheel, because the wheel hasn't been invented, how would you, what are the key steps that you think uh, governments should take to start this process of taking this new approach towards Indian agriculture? I think, first of all, we should understand what is the problem we're solving, right? And I, I think it might be useful to um, place the Indian agriculture challenge in the context of a few facts. The first fact, I think, is that while it is anywhere between 14 and 16% of the economy, it actually is not one homogeneous sector. This consists of many, many different sectors, all bundled under Indian agriculture. So you have a dairy sector, which is about 8 lakh crores, uh, some say as large as the auto sector. You have the marine and the poultry animal husbandry sector, which is again huge and growing at almost 20, 30%, depending on which year and whether we get hit by COVID or not. You have the grains business, which is almost 300 million tons at a time when Ukraine and Russia crisis is going on. And you can realize that the size of the global traded market is a small fraction of what India produces, right? So you have a grain sector. You have a sugar sector, an oil and palm sector, you have horticulture. So you wouldn't think of having an uh, industrial policy for India's industry. You would have an auto policy and you would have a semiconductor policy and you would have a telecom policy. So point number one is we need different solutions to different parts of agriculture rather than a agriculture strategy. Point number two is who are we talking to? You know, there are wild estimates of how many farmers we have. This whole thing is about making uh, sustainable agriculture for the country from a food safety point of view, but also for the farmers. And it's fascinating to see that the range, uh, the estimate of the number of farmers we have goes from the ag census, which says we have about 146 million farmers to what the NSO uh, rural household, which looks at only operational holding said, which is 96 million farmers, right? So you have, we don't even have a common understanding of the size and within this, we have uh, small, medium, large. So there are about an estimated 15% of farmers who own 60% of the land. That's one cut. Or if you look at people, farmers who make at least 50% of their income from farming, then only 35 million farmers even qualify. So are we talking about a solution for 150 million households? Are we talking about a solution for 35 million people half of whose income comes from land and from farming? Or are we talking about only the small and the mid-side farmers who have perhaps the balance sheet as well as the PNL to invest back in the business is a question to debate. By the way, China debated the same. One seg interesting segmentation in China is they have what they call industrial farmers, really large. Then they have scale farmers who are big in certain sectors. Then they have boutique farmers who do high-end. And then 93% of their farmers are subscale small farmers. And a lot of the effort is actually aimed at the first three segments, not necessarily, mm -hmm. right? So we should also be clear who we are talking to and what kind of solutions we're bringing. And then finally, of course, uh, we need to understand the risks. We've had the old risks of plant fragmentation, soil, input cost, pricing, supply chain. But we also have been seeing for the last eight, nine years, eight, nine years ago, we've been seeing new risks associated with climate change. Climate change has hit Indian agriculture before it hit Bombay city in terms of floods, right? We see 
one percent degree one degree increase in temperature swinging output we see on an average i think in 2019 rain across the country was fine but we had floods in kerala and we had minus 30 percent uh, rain in Gujarat, minus 27% rain in Jharkhand, right? So we're seeing huge climate change related risks. And so to me, any solution that we come up has to keep these three things in mind. The fact that there are multiple segments, each of which has a different problem. The fact that there are multiple kinds of farmers, each of who can invest and take different kinds of risks. And that you have different risks, structural, fundamental, as well as emerging, that any new approach we have needs to tackle. That's right. So, you know, I think there's a there's a lot of food for thought to, uh, no pun intended, to unpack there, uh, especially because of the fact that what you're saying is that the repeal of the farm laws in some sense gives us an opportunity to look at this sector in a disaggregated fashion, and we can slice and dice it in many ways. As in, and what you've said is that there is obviously a, a vertical slicing between different kinds of products that are being produced, so your poultry and so on, which is all considered under one. And and, and then, of course, there are uh, small size, medium size, large in all of them, and there are common challenges across and specific challenges to each. Now, if you were to look at it from the point of view of prioritization, you said that China is focusing uh, a large amount on their industrial and scale farmers and perhaps even their boutique farmers. Uh, if we were to adopt this disaggregated uh, approach, then one, where do you think India should focus? And two, if we were to focus on those, whichever areas, whichever segment we want to focus on, especially given that state capacity is limited and we can't focus on all of them at the same time, as a, what are the kind of outcomes that you would like to see from those particular segments? So first of all, China is focusing on the first three segments today when they're looking at precision agriculture, when they're talking about drones, when they're talking about greenhouses, when they're talking about technology, when they're looking at data. In the mid 70s, when China did its first agriculture reform, which is where I think we are, they focused on everybody because the bottom 93%, they wouldn't have survived, right? And it's a, it's a question of survival for them. So I'm not, I'm in no way saying that we can only focus on the 35 million, right? I think the other 115 million also need a solution. The only difference also is that we should not assume that they come to market. They produce for self-consumption. They produce for local bartering. They produce for occasionally local trade, maybe with the exception of dairy and poultry. And so anything that we pull together should not be market-facing. Anything that we pull together should not assume that they'll be able to put higher input because in anticipation of higher output, either from yield increase or from price increase. That was the only difference. I think India has to solve for all segments, but has to solve for them differently. And I think the real solution is, first of all, remember, this is a state-wide subject. Actually, it's a district-wide subject because right. you know soil, water, input, relationships, everything matters. I think the, the most sensible approach, which a lot of experts have talked about, is to solve for it end-to-end, -end, which means to look at a package of solutions, which starts with how do we improve what we produce and how much we produce? Now, this takes you into the realm of investment in seeds, for example, right? We, we don't invest in seeds. Uh, we should be investing in better quality seeds. I mean, an estimated 30, 40% of seeds available are um, not necessarily uh, kosher. They're fraud. 
a lot of people recycle their own seeds because they can't afford to buy new ones. But we also need shorter cycles if climate change is happening. So we need R&D investment, right? We need investment in irrigation and drip irrigation. 44% of India is irrigated. 19% of Maharashtra is irrigated. And Maharashtra is the most water-stressed state we have, though it produces sugar. So there's a whole bunch of things on input, soil, water, seed, chemicals, fertilizers. Once you do that, you've got to then invest in inputs at the farm level reaching. And this is where the rich guy will think about, rich farmer will invest differently from the small farmer. And then you but will have- it, Sorry, please continue. No, the question that I had is that you said something that was very interesting is that most farmers, at least small farmers, are producing things for self-consumption. They are not even bringing it to market. So is it a policy objective that governments should have, which is that we want these people to bring it to market, which is why we are now investing? Or what is the goal with these with, with the farmers? Are we happy with them being self-sufficient and watering? They can't come to the market. Already. They're too small. I mean, they have literally small patches of land. That is, they will have no bargaining power unless they are part of cooperatives as they are in poultry, where they are part of integrator value chains, right? Exactly. Or in some cases in high-end horticulture or in some cases in cooperatives of dairy, unless they have that, they are, they are produced too little to be individual participants in the market, right? This whole, so to me, one piece of it is to be very, very clear. It, it's about clarity. Where do you want them to be market participants? Where do you want them to self-consume? Is worth thinking about and then to have distinct approaches for each. If it is for coming to the market, then you need inputs. Then you need harvesting properly. You need uh, you know, disaggregation based on specs. You need market corrections. You need uh, associations and capabilities which allow them to bargain. But if it's for self-consumption, then you have a very different approach. That's right. And I think the, the push that, or the point that I'm making is because our mental model is a poor farmer, like a you know an in Indian movie from the 1960s, exactly, right? And you know, Pavam fellow who's not able to solve for himself. We are not able to ever think about improving the quality of. But if you disaggregate it and say we have different personas, a rich farmer, a medium-sized farmer, a self-consumption farmer, maybe we would have different business models, even in the same crop, which reflected their ability to invest and take risk, and more importantly, their ability to participate in a market. Yeah, I think as in, this just shows the power of the visual medium and how it limits our imagination, because you're absolutely right, as in, you think of farmers, and the first thing that comes in my head is Lal Bahadur Shastri saying, Jai Jawan, Jai Kisar, and you have this notion from the 60s and old Bollywood songs and so on. So this poor but somehow happy farmer for whom the country should do something. The noble you know, poor. The noble poor, right? The noble poor, yeah. And I think that's, it's, it's very critical that, you know, if we are to do any reform without sounding unsentimental, as in we need to change those visual markers that we have. But coming to the point, yeah, sorry, please continue. So he's, he's a businessman. Yeah. Right? And he deserves the same stability of policy, the same access to market, the same access to inputs, the same risk management that any other businessman does. That's right. A, a self-made entrepreneur. And I think uh, need to think about them as that. And that itself will, will change the way we conceptualize uh, policy reforms. But you spoke about if we are looking for farm, if you're looking to improve the lot of farmers who are producing not for self-consumption, but can be brought to market. 
then I think one thing that was interesting is that when I read the repeal bill, the government moved a repeal bill to repeal these laws, the statement of objects and reasons of that repeal bill was, was very interesting because it read first like a homily to the laws and the difference that it would have made. That's fair. Uh, it didn't explain why it was to be repealed. It just said that it was great and then suddenly said it's repealed. So it didn't, one didn't flow from the other. But it also listed out all the schemes to address the points that you made in terms of greater investments being necessary, like better soil health, better water, better infrastructure like roads, more technology development. And it had a laundry list of things that the government either was doing or was desirous of doing in these areas to improve investments in Indian agriculture. As a tracker of Indian agriculture for a very long time, is this government or previous government's record on these areas as impressive as the statement of objects and reasons makes it out to be? Or is there much more room uh, for improvement in greater investments in areas like soil, seeds, water, infrastructure, and so on? I think there are two things here. One is that there is um, a decision we need to make between um, a welfare agriculture state and an investment-led agriculture sector. And this might be a more philosophical question for us as a country, not just related to agriculture, but it is a question because the amount we, on paper, if you look at the amount that goes in the form of subsidy, whether it's fertilizer, whether it is MSP, whether it is electricity free, whether it is the 10 other things, the PM Kisan, technically, if you divided it, by the number of farmers in this country, on paper, we've given them the equivalent of 60,000 rupees per year per farmer, which is laughable, right? And it doesn't do anything for improving the underlying conditions of the sector as a healthy sector to grow, right? And so it's easy perhaps to do the welfare piece and nobody's going to say no to it. On the other hand, if you look at the total investment in agriculture um, in terms of a, a cross capital formation, I, I think it's 13, 14% of which 12% comes from the private sector, largely in the form of tractors. 2% comes from the government of which 1.6% is salaries. So we don't invest, right? So that's a philosophical question saying, how do you want a sector which is this large or series of sectors which are this large to grow if you're not investing in it? I think the other question is the way we invest. If you look at the list you talked about, right? There were about 17 in the last budget, there were about 21 different initiatives that the government had announced, each of which was wonderful. But if you were a businessman and somebody told you, okay, I'm changing your rules of GST, I'm improving your land um, acquisition approach, um, I'm, but, but you know, I haven't thought through electricity available. I haven't thought through credit right? It's that the pieces are missing. Now, whenever India has looked at this in an integrated way, I remember in the mid 2000, in the early 2007, 8, 9 period, there was a horticulture mission, which had been created, which was interesting, not because it was, it took us to horticulture, but because it was end to end, it was designed end to end. It had inputs at the input side, and at the other end, and you know, we had elements of freedom that was given in the markets, which came because of the horticulture policy. And you suddenly saw over the last 15 years, how horticulture has grown in size by a multiple of six times. 
because we had designed a solution which took the farmer from the starting point to the end point and enabled the whole value chain to get better. Is our horticulture value chain you know, the best in the world? No, we are still at 20%, but it is much better than where we were 20 years ago. So I think the difference is we throw everything at the kitchen sink, right? We, we throw stuff and we hope something will stick. We need to look at it as an integrated value chain solution and then decide whether we want to do 21 things or we want to do only three themes. And under the themes, we will do five, six things each, but they all add up to a solution rather than anecdotally solving symptoms of a problem. I think that point is extremely well taken. And I think this is a problem with policymaking in India generally across sectors that we, that we look to get quick wins. We are looking to uh, solve problems in little pieces uh, and, and not even considering the, how the pieces fit together. Uh, but, but I think you said you, you put out a, a, a very compelling binary of whether we want to be a welfare agricultural state or an investment-led agri-sector. Do you think the two are uh, mutually exclusive? No, if you look at uh, agriculture across the world, um, it's a very high-risk business because of the vagaries of nature. And therefore, if you look at subsidy, whether it's in the US or in France, or in Switzerland, it's huge. So I think the real way, the, the sensible way to think about this is you have to de-risk the businessman called the farmer. Sometimes you de-risk him by giving him input related support. Sometimes you de-risk him by giving him protection. Sometimes you de-risk him by investing in that area. But at the end of the day, you treat him, you respect him as a businessman. So I, do, I think there is a third option which is to de-risk the agriculture sector. And it doesn't have the mindset of welfare risk. It has the mindset of de-risking, right? Mm. We should de-risk the farmer. And by the way, this is the rich farmer and the mid-sized farmer, as much as the small guy. Actually, okay. the small guy will get income support, right? Because he's not coming to the market. The mid and the large farmer should get de-risking support because he's taking a risk on your behalf as a country. Absolutely. In fact, last year, Irina, you had said that this is what the protests were really about. They were not about the laws themselves, but they were about social nets, about a group of Punjabi and Haryanvi farmers who are saying that we have de-risked the country for 40 years and now we need support to be able to transition away from wheat and rice and not left to our own devices. Now, do you? how do you think this de-risking can work? Because the government might say that, you know, we are trying to do this by allowing you to go to the market. We are making you free. Uh, that obviously hasn't worked. So how, how is de-risking feasible in today's day and age? I think, I mean, let's take a large farmer, right? Because you and I shouldn't make the same mistake, mistake of talking to an average that does not exist, right? That's let's true. take a large farmer who has adequate amounts of land and produces some combination of grain and horticulture and has dairy. He might or might not have poultry depending on which part of India he is in, right? And if you think about his business, and if you think about the value proposition he would give his next generation to continue in this business, I think the way you would think about ensuring that he makes sustainable returns is in two parts. One is making sure that the value chain that he is a part of is getting better in terms of yields. So there's adequate investment happening in India in our agriculture universities, we have policies that are sensible that get the best seed of the world into the country rather than silly policies that have kept the best scientists of the world away from India. 
we would have investment in water, especially groundwater recharge, right? And a lot of this is community-led. We would have investment in soil improvement and in big states like Punjab and Haryana, you would have transition risk management. If you really want the Punjab and Haryana farmer not to grow wheat and rice because he's been growing it for too long, it's monocropping, his groundwater has gone to an abysmally low level where you find uranium in the water and he shouldn't be growing it because the consumption is now happening far away and railroads and rakes are required. Then, you know, there is a certain amount of money that the intermediaries and more importantly, the state governments make, which we should underwrite like we have underwritten GST for five years, 10 years, whatever it is, that is politically uh, sensible, right? So one is we need to think about transition and we need to make sure we don't make the same mistake in UP and in Madhya Pradesh, as we have done in Punjab and Haryana, by making sure that there are incentives for uh, multi-cropping and not monocropping. So we have to think about this from a long-term point. That's point number one. And point number two is, even if the guy were to make adequate money, he will have, he will, ha he will need support at some point in time. And you can decide whether it is just based on ownership of land or this associated with stuff he buys to produce which you can always transfer to him, right? So I don't see a huge, um, I don't think we're thinking of anything that's new in the world. I think if we de-average the segments of farmers and looked at them end to end from a value chain point of view for each of the sectors, for grain versus horticulture versus poultry versus marine, we would come up with a package of principles and a package of solutions which would solve for growth as well as sustainable income. I think that's an interesting point to make about de-risking because the question that arises in my head uh, as, a, as a constitutional lawyer is that one of the things about the farm laws was that it was done at the central level, uh, despite agriculture very clearly being a state subject. Now, there could be some justifications for that, that this was about promoting interstate trade and so on and so forth. And I don't want to get into a constitutional question now. But on this point of de-risking, and especially also because you gave this GST example, uh, the argument has, of course, been made by states that, uh, you know, uh, that in order to build genuinely competitive markets, we have to renegotiate this complex relationship that exists, and relationships are different, and they are best done at a state or even a local level, a, a sub-state kind of level. So this kind of de-risking, where do you see this de-risking emanating from? Is it, is it right from the top at the center? Is it sort of, again, disaggregated de-risking depending on sector and size of farmers, or is it done at a state level you mean where does the money come from the money come from yes exactly hmm. i don't know you know i think uh, eventually it should come from wherever the pnl lies whoever raises um you know gets adequate returns from the sector should also take mental responsibility for de-risking the sector now you could i don't think this is a um, either or uh, or go because the union, uh, if you think of your example again of GST, uh, it was done at a state level, but the union orchestrated it, right? Yes. And we have, if you look at interstate issues in agriculture, right? Uh, some, some, would, some would say that it is water, but actually most of the water for agriculture is not necessarily river-based. It's groundwater recharge, right? So the interstate question in agriculture actually is one of specialization versus every state growing everything. Mm. Beyond that, these are very, very state-specific questions, right? We have 16 different agroclimates in this country. Actually, if you wanted agriculture to be solved for, you should be solving it for agroclimate level. 
not the mythical map boundary, which is a linguistic boundary, right? That has no meaning for agriculture. So I don't know whether the issue is union versus state. I think the issue might be, if you look at MSP plus fertilizer subsidy, plus PM Kisan, plus, 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 and you looked at what Raitu Bandhu in Telangana is giving or what Orissa is giving in their Kalia scheme, and you put all of that together. And then as a country, you looked at it and said, how much of this goes straight as income support to the poor farmer? How much of this goes as thank you for taking the risk on behalf of the country and growing food for us to the big and the small farmer? And how much of it goes back in the form of investment in, in uh, water or in seed or in R&D or in drones? I think it might be much more an allocation issue. And the fact that you have disaggregated pockets of welfare slash investment lying everywhere means that it is a suboptimal allocation today. So that's how I would think about it. Yeah, I think we spent uh, quite a bit of time uh, discussing the role of the state, that is both the government, uh, the union and the state level. Uh, but let's move to the, the role of the private sector because one of the things that the farm laws repeal has signaled is the is the end of reform not just for agriculture but for other sectors as well let's keep the other sectors on one side uh, but the let's talk about the agri value chain and the role of the private sector i mean the essence of those laws were freedom for the farmer but as you said in the last episode that's not the issue it's a stable and certain value chain and the farmer being made a part, subject to the fact that they are capable of doing it being made a part of that value chain uh, now that these laws are gone and uh, there is a apprehension that uh, the private sector will not be able to play as large a role in farming as perhaps the laws might have allowed them to do, uh, and it's back to this kind of welfareism, how do you see the role of private sector operators, small and large, uh, that's from the arhatiyas, as in who continue as middlemen, to large uh, procurers like PepsiCo and so on, how do you, or ITC, how do you see the, their role, if at all changing, in creating this, this value chain? First of all, the laws never went. I mean, the never, laws never came, so they never That's went. Right? <laughs> so we are exactly, right. for, you know, all these years. There was no interim honeymoon period where the sun shone and the angels chirped, and now suddenly the laws have withdrawn. Nothing changed for my poor farmer, okay, or my rich farmer. Um, so what, I think, the, the private sector has many roles, uh, and so, by the way, does community. And I want to start for a minute by community, right? You cannot solve for water and soil if you don't have the community involved. And one of the big challenges I keep throwing at the nonprofit world or at the community world is not to make a villain of the rich farmer, because you can't solve for this only by aggregating the small farm, right? So I think the community plays a huge role in managing the commons, in managing water, in managing soil quality, and in actually thinking through power structures. Because at the end of the day, the value chain is a reflection of the underlying power structure between the big and the small, between the farmer and the trader, right? So I think there's a huge role for community. And wherever we've seen communities think of this in a sensible way, whether it's in a cooperative or in a farmer producer group, we've seen wonders happen because they actually have so much of power in their hands. And I think we should not take a patriarchal view which says, you know, one private sector is going to come and reform it. No, I think communities have to take mental responsibility for win-win, especially now when you go to a village today 
or go versus say 10, 15 years ago, you will see five or six boys and girls hanging around, educated till class six or eight, occasionally till 10, nothing to do. They don't want to farm and there is no alternate option for them. So I think it's in the interest of communities to uh, think about what they want to do. And I just want to emphasize that. But if you think of the private sector, the private sector can play many roles. Private sector can play a huge role in building infrastructure, whether the infrastructure is, you know, uh, go downs or it is sorting and grading mechanisms or it is value addition. The issue there is, do they see too much of risk in, in terms of returns, right? Or if you look at some of the largest exporters today, you couldn't have a better time than today for exporting, given um, what, what's happening to wheat, right? And the underlying concern that every guy would have is when, if and when will the government say no export of wheat alone? So there's so much of uncertainty that investment in infrastructure, which is always a annuity business with low returns is weak because you're so unclear about policies being stable for the long-term because the government that has not created those conditions. The other big source of value added then inputs to increase quality and quantum of output because they are users of it. Private sector at the other end is buying this to sell on to the market. And there I think companies have found ways of working with fragmented um, farm structures, whether it is you know, with you know, cocoa growers or with coffee growers or with tea growers or with you know, orange growers or banana growers. There are models across the world. I think the real issue here is the maturity of the consumption sector, because a lot of the consumption sector, given that we are still at $2,000 per capita income, is still in its early days in terms of processing, in terms of food service. One of the largest uh, enablers of uh, better quality output is the food service sector, because the producers, the branded companies take the best of the crop, but the unwieldy tomato goes into food service. And as the food service sector becomes large, you will see a lot of signals going down. And the third thing is today, uh, scope two, scope three, becoming big for a large number of companies is potentially a very, very early uh, indicator of also how much of um, focus you're going to get in the future back through to the value chain. So I think there's money to be made in infrastructure and agriculture, there's money to be made in trading, there's money to be made in sourcing. What we really need is we need larger number of players at the front end and we need more stable and predictable policies so that people invest in this. Right, and I think that's the that's the key feedback we get from the private sector in, in most areas that uh, they're happy with whatever policies come as long as they're stable and certain uh, because that allows uh, everybody to plan. Uh, so now let's uh, gaze at a crystal ball and look at what's uh, what's uh, in store for the future of reform in this space. Given the fact that the government has had its uh, hands bitten, uh, it's uh, largely being speculated that uh, reform in agriculture and other sectors is largely dead. Uh, do, do you think that that in some kind of warped way would be a kind of policy stability that a private sector will say that, okay, the government's now not going to do anything positive or negative in this. So this is, this is a chance for us to enter, or do you think that there will still be a lot of apprehension given the fact that uh, this is seen largely as a defeat uh, for privatized farming? I, I think 
the so there's a part of me which dreams and there's a part of me which is realistic i think the dreamer is going to go to sleep for a couple of years because the election is in 2024 and if you look at the time required oh, is that the dreamer or is that the realist <laughs> both, both of them are, that's a fact right I, you know a very intelligent um a, a politician who was very passionate about agriculture told me something once uh, when we were serving him he basically said that one of the challenges with fixing agriculture is that the time horizon to have any meaningful impact is more than 4 years <laughs> if you look at the cycle if you're very lucky you have 4 years before you start you know getting into election mode for the next election and so i just think given that we have 2 years or you know gujarat is end of this year and then you have a couple of others coming i think at the union level i doubt very much uh you want to you want to see one of two things either you see somebody who's passionately in love with agriculture i haven't seen that human being or you see enough time to be able to make a difference i don't think we have so i i don't see much happening at the union level maybe there will be some more policies and 17 more steps all of which will ride into oblivion and that's the best that i think we can hope i think the interesting thing is states could states um see value in this because their constituencies uh, with their farms uh, with their farmers um and some of the advantages i mean none of the policies have been slam dunk successes but they have created buzz right so i think the interesting thing for me would be at a state level would we start seeing um switch from welfare to investments right and i think there we would really need um a politician who both understand agriculture and understands private sector because it's in the marriage of these two it's in the marriage of the market and the farm that the answer lies right it's not just in farm i mean i always tell friends who want to solve women diversity issues that the answer lies with men why do you hold meetings with women right so in the same way if you really want to solve for farm issues the answer lies in government getting out today it's the regulator and the buyer and the um infrastructure provider it has to decide which role it wants to play um the markets have to become more linked in and the farmers of course will do what they're doing heroically even better but it's in this it's in this aggregation of different stakeholders that the answer lies and for that you need a very passionate politician who doesn't see uh, markets as bad and farm farm as good right but does does see that the salvation lies in mutual cooperation and so let's see if in some states we find one model which the others will then replicate so let's see as in the marriage of market farm and government as the third wheel uh, three parties in this marriage let's hope it works out well uh, but thanks very much irina for this discussion as in it's been a year and a half uh, and as we said as it felt last time when we were speaking that there a lot was happening some of it wrong but there was a lot of energy and passion and now it feels like as you said nothing has happened at all uh, but that actually gives us an opportunity to think about this in the you know in a way that's meaningful in a way that's disaggregated and in a way that doesn't think of this farmer as this poor noble soul who has to be helped but rather as an entrepreneur as in who deserves stable clear policy uh, so thanks very much irina again for joining us it was wonderful talking thank you argo bye take care thank you last week i asked a question on the link between hari vishnu kamath and the portuguese civil code it was a slightly difficult question uh, and the answer is the invocation of god 
When the Constituent Assembly had taken up the preamble, Kamath proved an amendment saying that the preamble should begin with the words in the name of God. And the Portuguese Civil Code, applicable in Goa, begins with the words Dom Luis, by the grace of God. This was again a tough one, but hopefully an interesting one for everyone. So let's try an easier question this time. Since it's about the farm laws, could you tell me what is the procedure in parliament that the opposition complained of for not having been followed during the passage of the farm laws, which were passed by a voice vote? The opposition demanded a particular procedure which requires actual counting of votes. That procedure was apparently not followed, and that led to major protests in the House. So what is this procedure that is common to many parliaments that was not followed during the farm laws debate and passage of the original bill? Do write in with your answers to justify at vidilegalpolicy.in. All right answers stand a chance to win an exciting prize. Since this was about farm laws and we had an excellent discussion with Irina about where we are going, I think it's also appropriate to know where we are, that the situation of Indian agriculture is still quite dire and no movie captures it as succinctly and pitily as Peeply Live. So here's a song from Peeply Live to remind everyone of the reality or a possible reality of Indian agriculture. Thank you for listening. Adjourn. <laughs> If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Vidhi underscore India for regular updates. We are on SoundCloud and Spotify as Vidhi Center for Legal Policies podcast. You can also listen to us on Google Podcasts or iTunes. Email us at justify at vithilegalpolicy.in to share your comments and feedback on this episode.